Hey, welcome to Gospel Community Sermon Podcast. Thanks for listening in. We hope that uh, you enjoy what you hear and that we handle the word faithfully. We'd invite you, if you have any questions or want to attend a service, to visit www.gcctroy.com. report or a few others that have as their kind of central theme uh, just kind of this theological or, or sense of determinism. Something is bound to happen, therefore it does happen, uh, and it kind of has this theme that runs through it. And in fact, I remember in 2011, there was a particular movie that came out. It was called, uh, oh, it had Matt Damon in it. This is bad. I should put this in my notes, but I didn't. Uh, I can't remember the name of the movie, but regardless, it had this theme. And I remember sitting there in the theater watching it, thinking to myself, this is just really bad. This is a really bad movie on so many levels. And now I probably shouldn't tell you the name of the movie as I'm ripping on it. But regardless, it it kind of dealt with this theme uh, of kind of something that was bound to happen. And we sense this all the time from Hollywood, from other things. We get this kind of very flat, two-dimensional sense of, of a deterministic kind of thing. Something is bound to happen, therefore, no matter what route you take, it will kind of get there in the end. And what we see in the Scriptures is we see something quite different. And in fact, I think that's why I was frustrated watching that movie in the theaters in 2011. There's such a flat sense of determinism, uh, but when we get to the Scriptures, we see this full, robust, three-dimensional sense of God's sovereignty and our responsibility and how the two things kind of come together. See, this morning, I want to put this idea in front of us from Genesis 42 through 45. God pursues His people through providential means that God is actually pursuing us through the circumstances that He provides for us. Stated another way, God is not a God left to respond to circumstance. He is fully knowledgeable of a given circumstance before it ever comes into being. And for those who want the cookies on the lowest shelf, here's how I would say it again. God has no plan B. God has a plan A that He is working from start to finish. And as we look at Genesis 42 through 45, this is exactly what we see. We can see in chapter 42 that Joseph's brothers travel to Egypt where where their guilt resurfaces. Chapters 43 and 44, Joseph's brothers return to Egypt where their punishment is pronounced. And then finally in chapter 45, Joseph reveals himself and shows grace to the guilty, bringing about this kind of holistic uh, restoration and renewal that God has been kind of pushing us toward throughout the book of Genesis. See, my hope today is that in Genesis 42 through 45, we might find something that sticks in our minds for weeks to come, that we might be swept up, as it were, into the depths of the riches of the wisdom and knowledge of God, that we might embrace a full-throated articulation of God's sovereign purpose without caveat or apology for what the Scriptures boldly proclaim. Proclaim like this in Isaiah chapter 49. Listen to how God speaks of His sovereignty. He says, remember the former things long past, for I am God, there is no other. I am God, there is no one like me, declaring the end from the beginning and from ancient times, things which have not been done, saying, my plan will be established, and I will accomplish all my good pleasure. See, as we see this sovereign, sovereign God this morning, I, I hope that we'll trust Him anew. 
this morning, we have some 130 verses to cover. Now, I can't help but notice that when we decided we were going to preach four chapters, a coffee bar showed up in the corner and a chair showed up for me to sit down on, right? But we're going to get through these, and I I hope to kind of do this a little bit differently. We'll kind of highlight and summarize and then kind of dig down into the text when something important kind of rises up uh, that we need to kind of... uh, rest on for a second, but I promise you we'll get done within at least three or four hours. So, uh, but we will be digging through Genesis 42 through 45. Let's start in this morning in Genesis 42. The first thing we see is that Joseph's brothers travel to Egypt where their guilt resurfaces. See, what happens in in verses one through five of chapter 42 is Jacob sends his sons to buy grain in Egypt. When we left off last week, we saw there was this worldwide famine, and now it has affected the family of Jacob. And so his sons, uh, minus Benjamin, head down to Egypt to buy grain. And in verses 6 through 17, Jacob's sons come into Egypt, and we find them bowing down to Joseph. Look at verse 6. Now, Joseph was governor over the land. He was the one who sold all the people of the land, and Joseph's brothers came and bowed themselves before him with their faces to the ground. Our ears should be tuned into that bowing that happens. Joseph saw his brothers and recognized them, but he treated them like strangers and spoke roughly to them. Where do you come from, he said. They said, from the land of Canaan to buy food. And Joseph recognized his brothers, and they did not recognize him. And Joseph remembered the dreams that he had dreamed of them. And he said to them, you are spies. You have come to see the nakedness of the land. So Joseph's brothers come, and they bow down before him. Just as chapter 37 had told us would happen, Joseph's dreams are coming true. These brothers are bowing down before him. But the passage also wants to make sure that we know that Joseph recognizes his brothers, but his brothers do not recognize him. And what happens then is Joseph starts forming a plan in his mind even as these verses begin. Verses 10 through 17, Joseph presses into this narrative of his brothers as spies. And he speaks to them harshly like they were foreign operatives or fifth column saboteurs. That's a word that only Brian Spirito would know, right? And verses 9, 14, and 16, uh, he accuses them of being spies. This is just a brilliant move by Joseph. What it does is it allows for Joseph to kind of get into the backstory of his brothers, to ascertain exactly what's happening with his father and with his brother Benjamin. So Joseph says that he, in the end, in verse 16, he will not uh, give them grain or send them back until one of them goes and gets their brother Benjamin and brings him back. And what happens in verse 17 is he throws them in the clink, right? He throws them all in jail, all of his brothers. And it's this this massive turnaround because these are the uh, nine brothers that had thrown Joseph into the pit, and now Joseph is getting sweet retribution, correct? Well, what happens then in verses 18 through 25, three days later, Joseph gives a new offer. And in verses 18 through 20, uh, he gives this new offer where he says, one of you will stay imprisoned and the rest of you will go home and I will not release that one brother until you bring back Benjamin or your youngest brother to me. So Joseph's brothers uh, hear this statement from Joseph and they recognize their guilt in verses 21 through 22. And so it's on the screen here this morning. Then they said to one another, in truth, we are guilty concerning our brother and that we saw the distress of his soul when he begged us and we did not listen. 
That is why this distress has come upon us. And Reuben answered them, did I not tell you not to sin against the boy? But you did not listen. So now there comes a reckoning for his blood. What's happening in this statement? First, these brothers know their guilt. They hear the echoes of Joseph's words in their mind, don't they? They hear Joseph calling out for help in his distress. Second, they, they see their present hardship as a result of their sinfulness. That's why in verse 21 they say, this is why this distress has come upon us. It's this impossible thing that we try to do sometimes. You ever do that? You read your circumstance and you determine God's heart behind the circumstance? Oh, the backwards reasoning of our sinful hearts. We are uniquely, uniquely unqualified to read the circumstances of our life and determine either our innocence or our guilt. And Joseph's brothers are looking at this circumstance and saying, no, God is judging us for the wrong that we've performed. But by the end of this story, we're going to see that actually God is being abundantly gracious to them. Let's move on. Verse 22, Reuben steps in. And look at Reuben's statement there in verse 22. Reuben answered them, did I not tell you not to sin against the boy? But you did not listen. So now there comes a reckoning for his blood. Reuben says, I told you so. I knew this was going to happen. Actually, Reuben's only half correct though. Reuben in chapter 37 told his brothers not to take his life, but he then proceeded to tell them to throw him into a pit, which is essentially would accomplish the same thing. He's not exactly innocent, innocent of his guilt as well, but he's pretty sure that it's his brother's fault. There's this statement my dad threw around that I, I heard recently. He said this. He said that he's often in doubt, but, or ne- often wrong, but never in doubt. And, and I think that kind of applies to Reuben here as we kind of see this play out through the book of Genesis. And what happens in verses 23 through 25 is Joseph's kind of taking all of this in. And what happens in verse 24 is that he, he kind of goes off to another spot and he just weeps. He breaks down crying. In fact, Joseph's going to cry a lot in this these chapters. Verse 24, he slaps the cuffs on Simeon, his older brother, and then in verse 25, he kind of blesses his brother. He fills all of his other brothers. He fills their grain or their sacks with grain, but he also does this other thing where he puts all of their money back into the sacks that they had brought with them, and he sends them out on their journey. See, we see Joseph's game. Joseph is testing these brothers to see if they'll take the money and run, just like they did with him, right? They, they sold him for money. They kept it for themselves at the expense of his life. And they're seeing if, if they're just going to cut bait with Simeon, just like they did with him. That is, with their bags stuffed with grain and money, will they ever see fit to come back and get Simeon again? See, Jacob's family then is kind of made aware of these situations. And what happens in 26 through 38 is the brothers travel back to Canaan. Specifically, verse 26, they pick up, they go back to Canaan. In verses 27 through 35, something drastic happens. They find the money still in their sack. Look at verse 28. One of the brothers said to his brothers, my money has been put back. Here it is in the mouth of my sack. At this, their hearts failed them. And they turned trembling to one another saying, what is this that God has done to us? Do you hear the the tones of God's judgment that they're anticipating their own guilt and they're seeing their guilt in the midst of this? Their their brothers are still convinced that God is, is punishing them. 
And so they tell their story to Jacob in verses 29 through 34. And both Jacob and Reuben respond in verses 36 through 38. Look, look at verse 36 with me. And Jacob, their father, said to them, You have bereaved me of my children. Joseph is no more, and Simeon is no more, and now you would take Benjamin. Remember, that's what Joseph required. All this has come against me. And then Reuben said to his father, Kill my two sons if I do not bring him back to you. Put him in my hands, and I will bring him back to you. But he said, And my son shall not go down with you, for his brother is dead, and he is the only one left. If harm should happen to him on the journey that you are to make, you would bring down my gray hairs with sorrow to Sheol. See, Jacob thinks that Joseph and Simeon are now lost. And what happens in verse 37, go ahead and look at verse 37 with me, is that Reuben offers to kill his own sons if he doesn't bring Jacob's other son back. Just as a, a word of wisdom out there, if anyone ever promises they will do good job, a good job of taking care of your kids by swearing the lives of their own children, you just don't hire that person as a babysitter, right? This is just a really bad form from Reuben. And there's just a lot of emotion running high in this passage, isn't there? Verse 38, Jacob shows his, his true heart. He says, Benjamin, Benjamin is the only one I have left as he speaks to nine of his other sons. Jacob sees, or says that if Reuben loses Benjamin, it would bring his gray hairs down to Sheol. He said this before in chapter 37 when Joseph died, didn't he? It's with sorrow that I'm going to go down to the grave. It's with sorrow that I'm going to go down to Sheol. So we leave chapter 42 in a bad spot. There's still five more years of famine coming. Simeon is held captive by Joseph, but Jacob refuses to send Benjamin to Egypt with his brothers in order that Simeon might be released. Now here's the thing. I find that nothing motivates me quite as much as hunger does, right? It hits like one o'clock in the afternoon and I'm turning inside out. Nothing motivates me like a, a good strong hunger in my stomach. And what's going to happen is that Jacob and the brothers are going to have to respond to their most fundamental need, which is food. And so what happens then is that Joseph's brothers return to Egypt where their punishment is pronounced in chapters 43 and 44. Jacob eventually, through deliberation, sends Benjamin. And we see this kind of argument happen in 43, 1 through 14. Uh, Jacob makes this really strong accusation in verse 6. And he says, why did you treat me so badly as to tell the man that you had another brother? Why didn't you just lie to this uh, person in Egypt and not tell him about your other brother? And, and Judah's response is pretty simple. It's probably a good idea to tell someone that thinks you're a spy to tell them the truth, Right? And Judah makes a, a similar offer to Reuben's in, in verses 8 and 9, and it's on the screen here in front of us. He says, send the boy with me, and we will arise and go, that we may live and not die, both we and you and also our little ones. I will be a pledge of his safety. From my hand you shall require him. If I do not bring him back to you and set him before you, then let me bear the blame forever. Do you sense the difference between Judah's appeal and Reuben's appeal? Reuben says, if I don't bring Benjamin back to you, I'll kill my own sons. How does that make any sense? Judah stands in front of him and says, if I don't bring Benjamin back to you, it's on me. We can see the character of Christ in the person of Judah even here. 
But what happens then in 11 through 14, Jacob says, go. And in verse 14, he offers this kind of prayer. He says, may God Almighty grant you mercy before this man. Jacob's kind of praying a prayer that he doesn't even fully understand. Hey, Judah, can you find mercy before your brother who you've sinned against? We're going to see this kind of come to fruition here in just a moment. And so Joseph receives his brothers in verses 15 through 34. This is second trip down to Egypt, and he receives their brothers. They're welcomed into Joseph's house in verses 15 through 17. And so what happens then is because the brothers are invited into Joseph's house rather than into the prison that they were or into the palace or whatever else it was, they start freaking out. Verse 18 of chapter 43 kind of highlights this. The men, the brothers, were afraid because they were brought to Joseph's house. And the first thing they do is they start making an appeal to the steward of Joseph's house to explain their situation. They say, well, we tried to pay for the grain that we stole the last time, uh, but we just found our, our grain was there and then all of our money was returned. And uh, <laughs> Right? It doesn't look very good. But note the steward's response in verse 23. It says, peace to you. Do not be afraid. Your God and the God of your father has put treasure in your sacks for you. I received your money. See, the servant already speaking on behalf of God, recognizing the blessing of God coming to these brothers despite themselves. And so then they kind of back up. And they're going to present this gift that they've brought to Joseph in verses 24 through 25. See, back in verses 11 and 12, Jacob had, had told the brothers to take a gift down to them. And it was all kinds of things. It was fruits and pistachios and almonds because, you know, the thing that you want to give the second most powerful man in the world is pistachios, obviously. What happens in verses 26 through 34 is completely unexpected. They're you know, preparing to give this gift to kind of appease Joseph. And what happens is that Joseph shows up with a party. Verses 26 through 29, Joseph sees his brothers again. He asks about Jacob, their father, if he's well. He sees Benjamin for the first time. He cries a little bit. And then when Joseph comes back out, he starts serving all of them food. All of Joseph's brothers are at one table. Joseph himself sits at a separate table, and all of the Egyptian people start to sit at a different table. And it's kind of really awkward because he seats them in birth order so that, you know, you have Reuben on one end and Benjamin all the way down at the other. And what they start doing is they start taking food from Joseph's table and dispersing it amongst the brothers. But when it gets to Benjamin, they give him five times as much food. Not just a little bit of food, they just overwhelm this guy with a ton of extra food. See, the brothers, uh, they, they enjoy this time. It's almost like they've, they've got so much stress that they kind of let loose a little bit. And so when the, the last verse in the chapter says that they became merry, if you look at the, the text, the ESV subnote says that they actually became inebriated. They, they had too good of a time so that they become drunk. And Joseph seemingly has planned this. Because what happens in chapter 44 is that Joseph starts to execute sec the second part of his plan. Verses one and two of chapter 44, Joseph takes a cup, a cup that he uses for divination. I have no comment on that. But he takes this cup and he plants it in Benjamin's sack. 
And the next day, they get up, and Joseph sends them on their way. Verses four and five, Joseph tells his servant exactly what to do. He says, go and hunt them down, uh, find them, and then say this, why have you repaid evil for good? Is it not from this that my Lord drinks this cup, and, and by this that he practices divination? You have done evil in doing this. I mean, this is next level strategy by Joseph, right? His brothers are playing checkers and Joseph's playing chess. It's not just that he plants the cup to catch his brothers red-handed. He also connives the situation wherein he shows his brothers that he can see and know things that they can't see or know. The brothers are shocked. And in verse 9, uh, the word of this accusation, they respond. In verse 9, look at what they say. They say, whichever of your servants is found with it shall die. And we also will be my Lord's servants. Reminds us of Rachel. Remember, Rachel leaves Laban's house. She steals her father's idol. She sets it under her camel's saddle to hide it from her father. It's the same scenario here. Joseph confronts the brothers directly. In verses 14, they're brought back to his house. The brothers come back to Joseph's house, and Joseph presses the same issues as his servant. In verse 15, what is this deed you have done? Do you not know that a man like me can practice divination? It's at this point that Judah speaks up. Verse 16, it's on the screen in front of us. He says, what shall we say to my Lord? What shall we speak? Or how can we clear ourselves? God has found out the guilt of your servants. Behold, we are my Lord's servants, both we and he also in whose hand the cup has been found. Judah's ready. He's ready for this to happen. He's ready to become servants to Jacob because, or to Joseph because of this thing that has been done. He sees that, that God has found out their guilt. Joseph in verse 17 responds. He says, far be it from me that I should do so. Only the man in whose hand the cup was found shall be my servant. But as for you, go it up in, in peace to your father. What's Joseph doing? He's saying, no, I just need Benjamin. I just need the one who broke the law. He's going to stay with me. He's setting up the scenario for them to cut bait, not just with their brother Simeon, but now to cut bait with their brother Benjamin, the favored son of their father, the only remaining son of Rachel, their aunt. If you want to just leave him, it's, it's the perfect time to do so. I'll just keep Benjamin here with me. What happens in verses 18 through 34 is shocking. Judah, the one who sold Joseph, the one who advocated to his brothers, let's not kill him, let's just sell him to these people that we never see him again. What, what profit is to us for us to actually spill his blood? Judah becomes the one who intercedes on behalf of his brother. Look at verse 30 through 34. It's on the screen in front of us. Now therefore, this is Judah speaking. As soon as I came up, uh, came to your servant, my father, and the boy is not with us, and just presupposing that I come back to Canaan without Benjamin with us, as his life, that's Benjamin's life, is bound up in the boy's life, or excuse me, Jacob's life is bound up in the boy's life, as soon as he sees that the boy is not with us, he will die. And your servants will bring down the gray hairs of your servant Jacob, our father, with sorrow to Sheol. 
For your servant became a pledge of safety for the boy to my father, saying, if I do not bring him back to you, then I shall bear the blame before my father all my life. Now, therefore, please let your servant remain instead of the boy as a servant to my Lord. And let the boy go back with his brothers. For how can I go back to my father if the boy is not with me? I fear to see the evil that would find my father. See, Judah pleads before Joseph to spare Benjamin because his father won't be able to take it. In verse 33, Judah offers himself as a replacement. Hey, don't keep Benjamin here as your slave. Let me be kept as your slave. Let me take his punishment. Let me be the one who bears his wrong. Judah was the one who wanted to sell Joseph back in Genesis 37, but now he's willing to swap himself with his brother Benjamin so Jacob, his father, doesn't suffer. This is all that Joseph needs to see. And in Genesis chapter 45, Joseph finally pulls back the curtain. See, Joseph reveals himself, and he's going to show grace to these guilty brothers of his. In verses 1 through 15, he speaks up. He reveals himself in verses 1 through 3, and it's almost too much for his brothers to bear. They're too shocked to even speak. And he says this in verses 4 through 8. It's on the screen in front of us. So Joseph said to his brothers, come near to me, please. And they came near. And he said, I am your brother Joseph, whom you sold into Egypt. And now do not be distressed or angry with yourselves because you said or sold me there, for God sent me before you to preserve life. For the famine has been in these land these two years, and there are yet five years in which there will be neither plowing nor harvest. And God sent me before you to preserve for you a remnant on earth and to keep alive for you many survivors. So it was not you who sent me here, but God. He has made me a father to Pharaoh and Lord of all his house, Lord of all his house and ruler over all the land of Egypt. You see, Joseph speaks a bit about God's sovereign purpose in verses four through eight. It's on three different occasions in verses five and seven and eight that Joseph addresses God's purpose in his suffering. And so Joseph is putting his brother's conscience at ease. He's saying, hey, you intended something for evil, but God had another plan. God had a salvific purpose in mind. I just kind of see this. This kind of becomes the denouement from this point forward in chapter 5 as the, the action kind of settles in. In verses 16 through 20, Pharaoh gets word of this, and he gives all of his resources to bring Israel and Jacob's family down from Canaan into the land of Egypt and then finally, the brothers return to Canaan, and they report back to Jacob in verses 21 through 28. So look at verse 25 through 28 here this morning. So they went out, up out of Egypt and came to the land of Canaan to their father Jacob. And they told him, Joseph is still alive, and he is ruler over all the land of Egypt. And Jacob's heart became numb, for he did not believe them. But when they told him all the words of Joseph, which he had said to them, and when he saw the wagons that Joseph had sent to carry him, the spirit of their father Jacob revived. And Israel said, it is enough. Joseph, my son, is still alive. I will go and see him before I die. It's almost like all of the issues kind of get wrapped up 
for us here in Genesis 42 through 45. It's like God has exalted his servant so that he could save his brothers, and now they kind of enter into this plenty, into this uh, uh, time of, of abundance and joy. All of the food that they need is provided. All of the restoration is there and present. There's no more division that God has so wrought all of these circumstances that, that everything has kind of come back together. And when we look at these chapters, chapters 42 through 45, in fact, this is why we're preaching them all in one setting, is we see this overwhelming display of the sovereignty of God. See, the recognition this morning is that our God directs all things. Our God is controlling of all things everywhere, all the time. There's nothing that escapes his plan or purpose. There's nothing that is outside of his eye or of his control. Our God controls, directs, sees, knows all things. Think about this, that God is the sovereign orchestrator of history. He's the architect that has designed the house that, that we live in, so to speak. This is what we see in in Joseph's reflection. If we look back at chapter 45 as Joseph's kind of pulling all of these pieces together, I just want to draw attention to three statements that Joseph makes. Look at 45 verse 5. And now, Joseph speaking this, now do not be distressed or angry with yourselves because you sold me here. For God sent me before you to preserve life. So Joseph starts off and he's saying, God had a purpose to bring preservation to all of us in this. God orchestrated this in such a way that that now you are preserved and I am preserved. Well, he goes just a little bit deeper in verse 7. God sent me before you to preserve for you a remnant on earth and to keep alive for you many survivors. It's not just that God wanted to preserve us. It's that God wanted to preserve our children. Remember the, the promise to Abraham's kids, to Isaac's kids, to Jacob's kids that they would become a great nation. This is kind of the the flow of the book of Genesis. Well, God is preserving that promise here through Joseph. As as God has brought Joseph through this mountain of suffering, he's preserving his promise to his people. And then he builds on it again in verse 8. So it was not you who sent me here, but God. He has made me a father to Pharaoh and lord of all his house and ruler over all the land of Egypt." Your actions were subservient to God's plan. We step away from this and we see God has sovereign purposes that we don't understand. But I want to highlight even a deeper level at which God is is working here. Certainly there's the, the narrative that happens that God has sent Joseph ahead of his brothers to preserve them. But there's more that's happening in this passage of God sovereignly working. He's not just kind of preserving the people of Jacob. He's actually uniquely working in each character themselves. See, God saves the world, but he also deals with his people uniquely. Look at each character as they are uniquely dealt with by the circumstances that are given. Remember in chapter 37, Joseph speaks up about his dreams, and we all kind of cringed a little bit. This 17-year-old Joseph saying, hey, you guys are all going to bow down to me. You know that? Every last one of you. (laughs) And he uniquely deals with the wayward heart of Joseph. Judah's self-seeking, the self-seeking that leads him to sell Joseph, the self-seeking that leads him to this 
kind of sinful interaction with Tamar, his daughter-in-law, chapter 38. That is dealt with by the sovereign hand of God. So that Judah Judah turns from this person who is a self-seeking, kind of conniving man to someone who is self-sacrificing. Joseph's brothers, even though they're wrought with guilt, which shows up throughout all of this passage back in, in 42, remember in 21 and 22 in chapter 42 when the brothers are saying, God is punishing us for the wrongs that we've done. Now they are seeing that God wasn't punishing them, he was preserving them. And so it's not just that God is weaving this narrative of preservation of his people, he's actually dealing with the individuals here. Notice there is no wasted suffering here in Genesis 42 through 45. There's no ounce of kind of waste in God's design. We, we cannot, cannot concoct a scenario in which Jacob's sons are saved from famine and each person is addressed by God's gracious working other than what is presented to us here. See, in this way, we see that God did not waste any suffering in the life of Joseph or his brothers. Name a way that we could get Joseph from Canaan to Egypt and get him the second command outside of the way that it happened. Name a way that we could preserve the sons of Jacob and the line of Jacob and deal with the hardened hearts of all of these brothers, brothers who are murderous and adulterous and are wayward. How can we bring them back into the fold of the promise of God outside of what God has worked here? So God is the one who sovereignly orchestrates human history. God is the one who sovereignly works in the lives of individuals. Finally, I just want to highlight something too. God deals with you and I as we read this passage. He's not just dealing with the characters in chapters 42 through 45. Right now, as we hear these words, we are being dealt with. Here, we have a story about a favored son who is mistreated by his brothers, and by God's sovereign appointment, he's brought out of his suffering into a position of prominence, and from that position of prominence, he brings salvation to the very brothers that rejected him. This sounds like Christ, doesn't it? And there's nothing that speaks to us of the sovereignty of God than someone who foreshadows what he's going to do generations later in the person of Jesus, the incarnate Son of God who's rejected by his brothers, who's exalted after his death and brings salvation to those who have rejected him. See, even now, the God of heaven is using this story generations later to move our hearts to trust him more. That's the sovereignty of the God that we worship. It reminds me of a passage that we went through last year in Ephesians chapter 1. Imagine pre-pandemic, all the joy that we had when we were in Ephesians. Let's go back to that time, right? Ephesians chapter 1, Paul writes this. He says, in him... We have obtained an inheritance, having been predestined according to the purpose of him who works all things according to the counsel of his will, so that we who were the first to hope in Christ might be to the praise of his glory. I just want to highlight just a few things that that God draws to us from this passage and how they sync up with our time in Genesis 42 through 45 first. Paul says God works all things according to the counsel of his will. That is, 
absolutely nothing exists without it being completely known and completely predicted and controlled by a sovereign God in heaven. Romans 11 says it this way. He says, for from him and through him and to him are all things. It's like a boomerang. I remember being a kid and I I got the Cheerios box and on the back there was this boomerang thing that you could, if you collected enough of the stamp barcode things, I should write this stuff down. Anyway, (laughs) if you collected enough of those and you sent it out, six weeks later it was supposed to show up at your door. Well, I sent it out, collected all the barcodes and sent them back and it felt like 30 years, you know, and it finally kind of came in the mail six weeks later. Imagine in the day of Amazon Prime waiting six weeks for anything but it came back and I get this, this boomerang and I take it out into the backyard and I throw it as hard as I can and it just like spikes right into the ground, right? It was the biggest piece of junk I've ever waited six weeks for in my life. God uses everything that he ordains like a boomerang. It's from him. It's through him. It returns to him. Everything has stamped all over it his divine purpose so that he works all things according to the counsel of his will. And when he throws it out, he knows it will return to him just as he, as he sent it. It never deviates from its course. It always comes back exactly as he planned it would. This is our God who works all things according to the counsel of his will. The second thing. Paul says that we ourselves are a part of that divine purpose. He says that we ourselves are predestined. Verse uh, verse 11 says that in Christ we have obtained the inheritance having been predestined. In verse 3, if we're to back up into Ephesians chapter 1, he says he chose us in him before the foundation of the world that we should be holy and blameless before him. See, I believe that predestined means that somewhere in eternity past, before anything exists, before time was even a thing, that God chose us in Christ, that God chose me before the foundations of the earth, that I would be in Christ. And when that time came about in A.D. 33, on the top of a hill outside Jerusalem, the sovereign God of the universe saw fit to place the entirety of my lifetime of sin upon the shoulders of one Jesus Christ, his flawless son, that he would expiate my, his wrath against my sin, that he would propitiate my sinful wrath, that he would take it away, that he would atone for it in its fullness, that at 33 AD, he placed all of my sin upon the person of Jesus Christ. And then sometime, fast forward to the year 1990, I've got my skids on, my starter jacket, I'm sitting in the children's ministry at Calvary Bible Church North Canton, Ohio, and I hear for the first time the good news that Jesus' death and resurrection are capable of forgiving my wrongs and my sins, and God in that moment sent his spirit to awaken my heart, to show me sin and righteousness and judgment, and God had foreknown that before the foundations of the world. See, I believe that when I'm predestined, God doesn't just make my salvation possible, he makes it actual. He actually saved me because he had purposed before the foundations of the earth to do so. 
But it's not just that. Paul goes on and he says that our predestination exists for the praise of God's glory. Christian, if you exist today, if you have faith in Jesus Christ, you don't exist for you. You exist for the glory of God in heaven as he sits upon his throne. Amen? I love the fact that we sang this song. It didn't even cross my mind that Levi was singing this song to the praise of his glory, to the praise of his glorious grace. Your very existence, Christian, screams out for all the world to see glory to God in Christ. It's by God that your sinful heart was turned from darkness and brought into light. It's by God that his own wrath at sin was satisfied at Calvary. It's by God that you are sustained by his spirit now. by grace. See, with all of that, we just step back and we say, there's no caveat, there's no fine print to the sovereignty of God. It's only by God's sovereign hand that a sinner like me would ever come to know God's grace. It's only by a sovereign hand that God would take uh, the 11th born son of Jacob, move him to a foreign land, raise him to the heights of of Pharaoh's household and preserve his promise to his brothers. It's only by God's sovereign hand that you and I would be sitting in this auditorium because you and I would naturally reject the things of the Lord, wouldn't we? As I look at Genesis 42 and 40 through 45, I have hope. I have hope this morning that God uses global difficulty for his salvific ends. Did you catch that? God uses global difficulty like famine in the land, all the world. He uses global difficulty to bring about salvation to his people. Here in Genesis 42 through 45, he uses a famine to bring about preservation. And the question I have for you as we close this morning, what might God be doing amidst our global pandemic right now. If all things are from him and through him and to him, what is God accomplishing now? I know what it exists to do, to glorify his name. And I have to think that he's still accomplishing his saving purpose throughout the world and that this pandemic isn't just plan B. It's plan A for our God. Let's pray. God, we trust your sovereign hand. We trust that you're doing the things that you set out to accomplish. That there's no hindrance to the things that you design, that you work. So Lord, move our hearts to trust in your Sovereign hand, Lord, as the hymn writer said, when we can't see your hand, lead us to trust your heart. I pray that you would bring about greater faith in us, that if it requires it, that you would press upon us, that we would go through even more difficult circumstance. Allow us to be through you, or from you and through you and to you. 
pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.